Hello, friends. Welcome to the In the Whisper podcast. I'm your host, Nita Wilkinson. We all know that life is just plain hard sometimes. Join me each week as I talk to a girlfriend about their journey of overcoming and how it always leads back to Jesus. Today, we're going to hear from my beautiful friend, Diane Hickey. She is a retired Lieutenant Colonel in the Air Force. Diane has led such an interesting life. In her 25 year Air Force career, she was a linguist in Russia, she's been kidnapped, and she has lived in the most interesting places in the world. She's gonna talk a little bit about those things, but for the most part, she's going to talk about her time at the Pentagon. Diane worked at the Pentagon on 9-11, and as we come up on the anniversary of that date, she has so very graciously agreed to share her difficult story of that day. Welcome, Diane. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Nita. So give, give us a little um, background on why you chose the military, as because it was a career for you. It, it was. Uh, still is. Yeah, it kind of still is, yeah. Um, so it, I didn't start it out to be a career. I was a senior in high school. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I didn't want to go to school any longer. Um, I look back now and think about it, and it was really I had no purpose in life. I, I Nothing was driving me. Nothing... I didn't really feel like I had anything to live for, but everything was okay. And then um, this was also during my senior year when Iraq invaded Kuwait, and then the United States responded to that. So I saw that through my senior year, and there was something about that that just drew me in. I wanted to be part of that. Um, I, I've never been one to think about, um, you know, I want to hurt somebody, but the going to the rescue of the uh, oppressed or, or those that can't help themselves. There was something about that and the strength of the U.S. military that could go in and do that and take care of the situation and free the Kuwaitis. Like, I wanted to be part of that. Mm -hmm. So uh, I thought, well, I'll, I'll join the Air Force. And um, I did that, and I, I signed a six-year enlistment because I, there was a bonus attached. So I'm like, oh, if I could do four years, I could do six years. And then um, one thing led to another, and next thing you know, it was a 25-year career, and I retired, and it has, I don't regret it at all. It was, it was very good for me. Um, and then now I'm a civilian, so I, I still work for the Air Force, but as a civilian. So that's kind of how I got into it, and then doors just opened, and so I would walk through them, and um, it, it, was, it was a good career. And you ended at what level? Um, so I, when I enlisted, I was uh, an airman, and about the seven-year mark, I had earned my bachelor's degree working nights um, when I had time. And so then I got my commission, and I became an officer. And so um, I grew as an officer then for the rest of my career, and I retired as a lieutenant colonel. Okay. And uh, talk a little bit about what you did in in the Air Force. You, your job was pretty much the same. Sure, yeah. So when I was enlisted, I was trained to be a Russian linguist, so I went to Russian language training for a year out in California. It was very intense. I didn't know Russian at all, um, but I learned it, and that was a very difficult experience because it was very hard language. It was a very hard school, and then um, I went to Japan and did some stuff. I, my career is in intelligence, and so you can just imagine some of the things that I'd be doing with the Russian language. And then when I got my commission, I was uh, also an intelligence officer, 
Um, and I worked, you know, I, I did a year in Korea. Um, I did some other tours. I was at the Pentagon, like you said. Mm -hmm. um, I was at the Pentagon over 9-11. And during that time, I was a lieutenant. So I had only been an officer for two years. And uh, I happened to be, I guess, at the right place at the right time. And there was a job opening for um, a daily briefer for the Secretary of the Air Force and for the Chief of Staff of the Air Force, which are the two highest positions in the Air Force at the Pentagon. And uh, so I was the daily intelligence briefer for them at that time. But um, then after that, um, I went on and did some other things, ended up at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base where um, I visited DeGraff and met my now husband and decided <laughs> this is where I'm gonna stay for the rest of my life. And it's been wonderful, it's really been wonderful. Well, before we get into 9-11, I wanna talk about my favorite story about your time in the military. <laughs> and that's when you were, um, you were kidnapped in Georgia, not the state of Georgia. Not the state of Georgia. But I love this story. First of all, to find out that my friend was kidnapped, even years later, was a little <laughs> shocking. But then to hear the story about it, it just always makes me, it just makes me happy. So yeah. it's really probably one of the best kidnapping stories you, you could think of. Um, and it truly was categorized as a kidnapping. I, I So I, I told you I had Russian language experience. Um, so when I was an officer, uh, they wanted some, um, some U.S. military people to go and be part of a United Nations mission that was observing the demilitarized zone in Georgia. Georgia is one of the former Soviet republics um, between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. And uh, there was a breakaway republic within Georgia, kind of like we would think of a state breaking away from the United States, and it's called Abkhazia. And the Abkhazia broke away, but there was a demilitarized zone between the Abkhazia border and the, the rest of Georgia. And so the United Nations was tasked with going in there and monitoring, make sure they weren't fighting and there was no weapons in there, whatever. So, so I was part of that because I could speak Russian. They spoke Russian in Georgia. And uh, we were um, patrolling one day along um, our path, which for the United Nations was a very predictable path, not a good uh, security practice to be <laughs> traveling the same place every day. But we did, and we were on the Georgian side, thankfully. Um, this day we were on the Georgian side traveling, and we came into a town that we go into all the time. And as we did, the street, the very small street, this is um, not really a first-class country or, or first-world country. It's probably second-world country. Um, we were coming into one of the villages, and there were people all over the streets, which was a little bizarre. And as we, we were in three armored personnel carriers lined up behind each other, the 12 or 13 of us that were on patrol. And so as we're pulling in, um, the people started dividing, and so we rolled up into, further into the street, and then when the people broke, like a sea parting, uh, we saw cement barriers in front of us, and we thought, oh, well, we guess we can't go this way. So we started to back up, and as we backed up, we saw a semi-truck come behind us and block us in. And we thought, well, this is bizarre. And then we realized they're actually doing it on purpose. And what it was um, were, were these folks here. I think it was the fall at that point. It was probably October, and it was starting to get cold. And their winters are very cold. Um, they're in the mountains, and they didn't have electricity, I think, for three months. Oh, and they were getting, yeah, they were getting worried that they wouldn't have electricity for the winter. And um, they thought that we could solve their problems. Of course, we were just a peace monitoring mission there just to make sure that they didn't fight with the Abkhaz or the Russians. We had nothing to do with the ability to give them electricity. But they saw us as United Nations. And so 
um, they said, we're not letting you leave until we have electricity, which was a much bigger problem. I mean, the, the electricity plant was not working, so we couldn't solve that. <laughs> uh, so there was like 12 or 13 of us. The, the uh, Polish officer was the leader for the day. So he went and started talking to the leaders of the village and um, called our headquarters. And they're working out the details of you know what can be done because we can't do anything. And so the rest of us were sitting there. And one thing about the Georgians, they they are truly the friendliest people on earth and they pride themselves in this and uh, they have a statue in georgia uh, mother georgia and she has a sword in one or a dagger in one hand and a bowl in the other hand and oh, wow. it, it says if you come in peace i'll give you some food if you don't come in peace then that's what this dagger is for or whatever <laughs> i don't know how it goes but anyway so they they were just so sweet and the, we were there um, and they just started bringing us food they started bringing us meat and bread and cheese and wine and they just we were laughing with them sharing stories and everything and it ended up being only about three hours but um, they finally let us go because higher headquarters promised that they would talk to the leaders in Tbilisi which is the headquarters or the, the capital of Georgia and try to advocate for them to get electricity but um, we, we didn't resolve anything that day uh, but we ended up being there for about three hours and it was the best kidnapping you could possibly imagine because it was I got fed really well that day they get in and they make really good wine so that was also um, a nice treat to have and and then when I got back to Tbilisi where I lived um, my landlord had seen it on the news and, and that was it was a few days later that I returned to the capital and um, my landlady was so worried about me and she came up oh Diana I'm so glad I'm so worried I was so worried for you oh and it was just it was just really sweet so yeah it was actually uh, my kidnapping was a highlight of my career yeah I don't think many people could say that no probably not uh, did they ever get electricity um, I think they did they did there there was still I mean it, it's it was a poor country and so there were still some brownouts but they weren't without electricity when winter came so that it, it was a compromise they they were able to work so they were heard their voices were they heard. were heard yes they were heard so that's yeah so it's yeah. all good sometimes you got to do what you got to do yeah sometimes you just gotta eat good food and drink good wine yeah. for the good of the country that's right that's right i took one for the team <laughs> that's right but now we're gonna go to maybe not as definitely not as uh uh, nearly as fun a day and so let's start out um, when on that day in 9-11 what did you think your day was going to look like I, I knew exactly what my day was gonna look like um, I so I was I was working at the Pentagon in the Pentagon but the Pentagon can't hold everybody that works for the headquarters for all the services so there was an element of the Air Force that I needed to talk to that was a, a few miles away and they call it Bailey's Crossroads and so that morning, um, after briefing the Secretary of the Air Force and the Chief of Staff of the Air Force, I had some meetings over in Bailey's Crossroads to talk to some of the analysts. These were the really smart people that knew a lot about um, Air Force intelligence and a lot about foreign weapon systems. And so um, I was going to go over there and meet with them for a few hours, meet some people I hadn't met before. That helps us do our job better to collaborate with them. And, um, and then go back to the Pentagon and finish out my day there. So, yeah, it was a it was a beautiful day. I remember I was wearing my blues. I was wearing a skirt. Um, I was wearing heels, and uh, I took the bus over to Bailey's Crossroads to meet with uh, the folks in the morning. And we were we were sitting there, and um, as we were sitting there talking, just work stuff, 
someone came in the room and said, the World Trade Center in New York's been hit by um, something. I think maybe even they said a missile. That might have been the first reports or a helicopter. And so I'm, I'm around weapons systems experts, Air Force weapons right. systems experts. So several of them, several of those analysts started surrounding the, the TV. I wasn't one of them. I was in the meeting still trying to do some other things. And, but I could overhear them talking every now and then, and I heard some saying, you know, that's, that hole is bigger than a missile. That doesn't make sense. Um, someone said, well, it could be a helicopter, but that hole looks bigger than what a helicopter would put in. So they're trying to analyze the situation and figure out what it could possibly be. Um, they said maybe a small plane, but it's clear day. So a lot of what a lot of us that remember that day um, heard people talking about. And then um, someone came in and said, well, I think we know what it is. I think it was a plane because that's what just hit the South Tower. And at that point, we all went, okay, this is a terrorist act. And so we knew something was going on. Um, and then the timing of it, everything seems now to have just happened at once, but I got a call very quickly to come back to the Pentagon. We have what they call crisis action teams, which are um, elements that are stood up during a crisis, and there's representation from a lot of different elements, including intelligence, and they asked me to be on the crisis action team, the CAT, um, and represent intelligence for the secretaries and the, the chief of staffs. So they told me I need to get back to the Pentagon. Well, I had taken the bus, and the bus only came every three, three times an hour. And so I was waiting for that to happen when someone came in again and said um, a bomb went off at the Pentagon. And so I thought, well, i got to figure out how to get there. So I started looking to see if anybody could take me. I found a, another, a captain that was um, said she could drive me. And so we left there, and... Trying to get to the Pentagon on September 11th was a difficult thing to do, um, difficult logistically, um, kind of difficult mentally, because I didn't know what to expect. A, a, a bomb went off. You don't even know where. It's a big building. I mean, it's only five stories, but it is a massive building. So right. you just don't know. A bomb in a parking lot, who knows? Um, but it so happened to be that as we were coming up um, over a hill, we were coming from the southwest, and as we were coming up, I saw black smoke. And to this day, the, uh, the Alan Jackson song, Where Were You When the World Stopped Turning on that September day, uh, I, I always think of that around this time of year because it was a beautiful pre-autumn day and the sky was so blue. And as I was coming up over this hill, there was this black smoke, massive black billowing smoke in front of this beautiful blue sky. And as I came up over the hill, I could see the Pentagon down kind of in a valley-ish area. And I saw all this smoke coming. And of course, at that point, we still didn't know what it was. Right. Someone said a bomb. We didn't know it was a plane yet, but it was massive. And there were hundreds or thousands of civilian and military people walking out of the Pentagon in every direction through the seats or th through the streets and the, the, the town. Um, heading home, uh, we don't know because most people don't drive to the Pentagon, they, they commute, but the, um, I guess everything was in gridlock. And so we couldn't get very close, I was probably a mile and a half away and couldn't get any closer, so I, I decided to walk the rest of the way. So, um, in as your I, heels. In, in my heels, yeah. Not funny, but these are the things you remember. Right. I was in pumps and um, walking back to the Pentagon to this massive building which had massive billows of smoke thousands of people walking the opposite direction as me 
um, it was kind of surreal. And then I got to the parking lot and I was approaching from the side that had gotten hit. So I was approaching the, the damage site, the, the, the impact site. And um, I, I started approaching the parking lot and there were cop cars coming around with megaphones. And so I, I had asked one of them, I have to get in the Pentagon. How do I get in the Pentagon? And he goes, well, there's only one entrance open and that's on the opposite side. Um, but then as I'm trying to walk through the parking lots, they're telling me to stay away from the building. So I actually had to walk around through Pentagon City and Crystal City first. It was a very long walk. Um, I'm pretty sure I had blisters that day, but other people suffered a lot more. So um, sure can't, yeah, can't, can't complain about that. But I remember um, it was all chaos. And I remember one of the policemen coming around with a megaphone saying, there's another plane inbound. There's about to be another attack. Take cover, take cover. And um, you don't know, you know, you, you don't know what's going on. Um, so I'm still walking because I had to get into the Pentagon. But then uh, a couple minutes later, a couple F-16s roared by. And from the military perspective, there's nothing better than the sound of fighter jets and the sound, we call that the sound of freedom. And so for me, those F-16s that swept by and the roar of their engines was just like so calming. And so that whole feeling I had when I saw us building up and going into Kuwait and kicking butt in Kuwait, I had that feeling again, like we're gonna be okay. Whatever's going on, we're gonna be okay because you know we're, we're strong. And so, um, yeah, so it took a, a while, a couple of hours for me to figure out how to get in the Pentagon um, that that was an adventure as well to, to try to get back into the Pentagon to figure out what my next step was. Yeah. And so you went into a place that maybe wasn't touched by the um, chaos of the plane and all of that. That's how big the building yeah, is. It, yeah. It's, so, I, so I worked um, two, so the Pentagon is five sides. I worked two sides away from where it got hit. So almost, almost opposite. Um, from where it got hit and it is a massive building um, and so when I finally did get into the building um, there was smoke going through the hallways already even though we were far away and then I had to uh, I worked in the basement in the mezzanine basement and so I had to get back down to the mezzanine um, and so I went back down there and we're, we're trying to do our job and right now our job is trying to figure out what happened and who did it and there's a lot of confusion um, yeah. at the beginning of any of this stuff. Sure. So a lot of confusion. And so we, we were caught off guard. And, and a lot of people say we knew it was coming. I can tell you from my perspective, um, we didn't know it was coming. Which was intelligence. So. We were in intelligence. I'm not saying we know everything. Clearly we don't. But we had no idea. There was a lot of indications that things were going on. But we had no idea, nor could we have possibly imagined that this would have happened. Nobody could have imagined, right. would have imagined this. But um, I was there, I don't know, maybe an hour and a half, two hours. It was early afternoon, and the smoke was getting so bad that they finally said, you know what, we have to evacuate, and we can't work in here anymore. And so they helicoptered some of us across the river to an Air Force base, uh, which was more secure. So we went over there, spent the rest of the day there. I tried to set up comms and connections, so I did a lot more walking from building to building across this big base. Um, and I think I was there until 11 o'clock at night. And it's just weird because, I mean, I could go on for hours and hours. Um, that day, to me, is one of the few days in my life where I feel like I remember every minute of the day. I remember the sights, I remember the sounds. Um, it was kind of surreal to me, because we had a job to do. 
but I remember the smoke and the days following too, because we were back in the Pentagon the next morning. They, they, they wanted to prove a point that we are not defeated. And so we went back into the building, which was still burning. Uh-huh. Um, that was a little hard for me. Um, I tried to block it out of my mind, but just walking into the building and walking in the halls, I felt like I should be going over to the crash site and helping right. because what people are still there that could be trapped in suffering that maybe I could help, right. um, but that wasn't my job. And so my job was to go and do these other things. And so I did, but it was, uh, it was a little, um, I don't want to say haunting, but it was, it was bizarre to be walking in a building that is still burning and there may be people still suffering. That was kind of, that was hard for me and I didn't really know how to wrap my arms around it at the time. Um, but I look back now and that, that really affected me. There was also very wonderful things that came of it. The community came together and there were banners up all over the halls of the Pentagon of, of, of school kids and organizations saying, we love you, um, thank you for keeping us safe and little handprints all over these banners and stuff. So there was wonderful things about the United States coming together after that. But there were just some things that were surreal and difficult and and I am blessed because I didn't get hurt in the Pentagon I don't know anyone personally who died that day Uh and so I feel very fortunate and very blessed um, because there were people that went through a lot of of tragedy that day and the days that followed and and I'm not one of them so I I feel very fortunate but it was uh, definitely a day to remember for any of us who were old enough to remember that day so conceivably you were working with people who knew people that were missing or because yeah. even though you were far away there would still be carryover so there yeah. were people that were doing what you were doing knowing that a friend was gone yeah. or a friend was missing yep cannot imagine yeah. i'm sure they train you for those things but wow yeah and they do and and i think the military is really good about um training you physically I mean, I'm in the Air Force, so it's only so physical. It's not the Army <laughs> or the Marines. But training you physically to be able to withstand um, adversity and training you mentally and emotionally, um, they, they, they give you, the, I think, the strength to do your job. No matter what the tragedy is, you don't break down. You, you take charge and you do what's needed to be done through adversity. Um, they don't train you to be strong spiritually. And at that point, I was not strong spiritually. Right. Um, so I, I went through the motions, and I felt, looking back now, I feel like I was strong mentally and physically and emotionally getting through it. And I, ju- I just did my job. Um, but I was not in a good place with God at that time. And uh, I think over time that, um, that kind of revealed itself to me, that that weakness uh, you know, really affected my life. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Um, you and I have talked about it before, and um, you were, like many of us, we get out of high school or college, and we go about our lives, and we take a step back mm-hmm. from our faith. Yep. Very common for all of us. We don't all face what you faced with 9-11 yeah. to, to bring us back or whatever. So, so you, you shared with me at one time that you didn't have the faith that you had as a child, because you were raised in the church. I was. And so there was something there, but it wasn't enough to sustain your soul or your spirit or whatever people want to call that when yeah. you were doing all the things with 9-11, which didn't end on 9-12 or no. even 
October 11th. No. They went on for a very long time. Very, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, w- I was raised in the church three times a week. Whenever the church doors were open, we were there. And I had a really good teen group. Um, I, I, so I had good bonds. I knew the stories of the Bible. At that point, looking back now, I did not have a personal relationship with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had the training, if you will, and I had the community, um, but I, I didn't have the personal relationship. And so when I joined the military, when I joined the Air Force, um, I went about the world and explored the world, and it was, it was great. Um, had a lot of good experiences, a lot of good stories. And um, after at 9-11, um, it took me years to realize this because at the time I was just doing my job mm-hmm. and you just keep going and, and post 9-11 like the months that followed we didn't get I, I think I got it we were working 18 plus hours a day um, I think the first day I got off was six weeks maybe into it so we were working seven days a week you just and you do and, and, and it's it's fine that's what we, we were paid to do that's what we're signed up to do um, so I didn't have a mental break. I just kept going, and I was hearing a lot of reports of the next problem that we were going to have, the next right. terrorist act. There were a lot of new reports coming in, and we had to pay attention to every single one of them because we didn't know what would be next. And so that was kind of draining to hear all the threats that could be out there, you know, attacks on D.C. where I lived, dirty bombs, and, and all kinds of potential things that could be happening again. So it was draining, but you get through it. Um, it took me years later to realize that at that time, I think if I had a relationship with Jesus at that time, all of those fears and anxieties would have been tempered with the knowledge that God's in control. And I don't remember the months that followed, I don't remember ever praying. I don't remember ever saying to myself or feeling God's in control, so we will get through this. I'm not saying that God will prevent things like this from happening again, but you know ultimately he will get us through that. I don't remember feeling that way, and so I think subconsciously I I went into um, kind of a place of despair, and I didn't realize it, and I started putting everything I had into work. I was married at the time, um, so that was 2001, and for the next two years work consumed me, I kind of became very um, emotionally detached from everything, including my ex-husband, and um, that affected our relationship. And really, I, and we ended up getting divorced for a couple of reasons. But I, I just look at it as the, all the things the Air Force trained me—they did not train me to have faith in Jesus, nor is that their job. Um, but I did not have that relationship with Jesus. And so when something significant happens in your life, um, you go a lot of directions with it. And I think in this case, I just became withdrawn and uh, detached Mm -hmm. from the world, from any human touch, emotional touch. And I, you know, I, I ended up losing a marriage because of it. And it really wasn't until 2005 um, that I started to realize all of this and I started to realize I, I, I want and I need a relationship with Jesus and my sister helped me through that she um, knew I was struggling and she sent me um, to a couple of the Psalms um, to, to pray and to, to feel the pain um, that I felt um, the shame that I felt for not having made it through with a marriage that I gave up on a marriage um, but she helped me um, come back and then um, just being back here and getting grounded in a church 
um, it made me realize that, you know what, all the times we uh, don't cherish God or we move away from God or don't have a relationship with him, he's still there. And our pastor uh, uh, gave a sermon on um, a covenant versus a contract, and that really made me think about God's covenant to us. Yeah. It's not a contract, so when one right. of us breaks the contract, done, see you later, we're done, um, he's still there. And I think about all those years when I was turned away from him, um, he still loved me, but man, I could have had a lot more joy in my life had I not been turned away from him during those rough times, because he would, he, I know he would have gotten me through those times. Yeah, and while it's hard to, and we, we all do it at different levels, when we put our hope in man, Yeah. and in a situation like you were in, I mean, I've never been in anything like that, and still there are times where I put my hope in man, yeah. and it never ends well, so I cannot even fathom something like this, and, and in your case, you probably felt like sometimes you were that person that was supposed to, you know, you took some of that ownership. Well, right, because we're, I mean, we're supposed to keep the world safe. You know, from an intelligence perspective, we why didn't we why didn't we figure this out ahead of time? And then from a military perspective, you know, we're, we're so, so yeah. There there was a lot of burden to to be the one to to go in and, and take care of our fellow citizens. Um, but you know, there just they're, there's a lot of dimensions to a human, and there are. there's the physical, the mental, the emotional, and the spiritual. And I, I am a full believer that all of those matter, and mm -hmm. uh, mostly the spiritual. And that was where I was lacking the, the biggest. So today, I actually met you through church. Yeah. And you're a beautiful sister in Christ to me, and your faith is much stronger. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that, you said your sister really helped you out, um, do you think that this 9-11 played any part in you coming back to God, or um, was it completely a separate? I think it did. I, I, I really think it did. Um, and again, I part of me feels bad to even think that I could have been traumatized by 9-11 because so many people truly were and so many people suffered um, and I just did my job and I was very fortunate but um, I, I think where I paid was I didn't have a relationship with God and that allowed me not knowingly at the time to spiral right. right and I was at such a dark place I was stationed in Korea going through a divorce and, and Korea already is halfway around the world right I was very alone I was in a very dark place and I just felt like I needed to go home. I needed to go home, and Wright-Patterson was close to home. I was raised in Ohio. My sister lived in DeGraff and still lives in the area, and uh, I just felt like I need to go home, and people kept saying, you will kill your career if you go to Wright-Patterson, because what was available there was not going to you know, set me up for a great career, and I said, I don't care. I, I, I need to go home. I have nothing anymore. I, I'm a hollow person. I have no roots. And so I, I think September 11th was the beginning of that darkness, mm -hmm. but the darkness ended, I mean, it ended many years. It was four years before I really felt like I was at the bottom. It took that mm -hmm. long to hit the bottom. And the um, coming back here and then meeting my husband who went to Gretna and just the, the church family, those were the roots and the, the growth and the strength that I needed. Um, and we, we do, we need each other just as much as we need God. Right, right, yeah, it's, 
an amazing story, um, a long day that I can't even begin to imagine. And for four years of, of darkness, yeah. that's a long time. And I am so glad that you found Jesus and Jim. And Jim. He, he is, because uh, you're not at all detached from, no. from relationships now. And no. I didn't know you during this time. And um, I'm just really glad that you were willing to share this story. Because I know it can't be easy, especially this time of year, to talk about these things. And it's, it's coming up not too far away. So I appreciate you spending your time with us. I have two fun questions for okay. you. Um, that we ask everybody at the end of the broadcast. The first one is, what is bringing you joy right now? It's a good question. So, I'm a Martha, and for anybody who doesn't know that, or even thinks they do, you really need to listen to Nita's <laughs> Mary and Martha podcast, because um, I listened to it, and I already knew I was a Martha. I'm a doer. I am, a, a, an, I am the kind of person that I feel joy when I do things and when I accomplish things, and I feel joy when I help people. Um, and the Marys feel joy when they connect with people and help people, but I feel joy when I do things. Um, and so right now, uh, we have this, the new ministry, Gifts with Grace, yep. and I am not a, a in-the-front person. Um, I don't like to speak in front of people. This already was difficult <laughs> for you to get me to do this, but I like to do things in the background. And so trying to build this ministry and the background things, um, some of the details and laying the foundation of the ministry, I'm really getting a lot of joy out of that. I'm really, in, I'm, I'm just... I feel good that um, God is able to use me in some way with my talents. And the other thing that brings me joy is just my family. My, you know, my husband all the time during COVID, we were stuck together for weeks upon end and we didn't want to kill each other. We actually <laughs> enjoyed each other. So, uh -huh. so yeah, that's what's bringing me joy right now. And what scripture are you living right now? Is there a scripture that you feel like is really getting you through things or just brings you happiness? So I, I go, you know, it really depends on our season in life. Mm -hmm, it um, does. I, I, I kind of suspected you might be asking me something so, sort of similar to this. And as I was th even thinking about this podcast and all the stuff going on in my life, not just during 9-11, but after, I remembered my sister um, sending me some verses, and I was trying to find those. And I'm not sure, this I think was part of it, um, but this just reminds me of when you're feeling dark and alone whether it's something you've done yourself or whether you're you know if you're the victim or you're the own perpetrator you're the perpetrator for ruining your life um this this is this is healing and this is psalms 31 mm -hmm. psalm yeah psalms 31 in you lord i have taken refuge let me never be put to shame deliver me in your righteousness and then a little bit later it says keep me from the trap that is set for me for you are my refuge into your hands i commit my spirit Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. I will be glad and enjoy and rejoice in your love, for you saw my affliction and knew the anguish of my soul. You have not given me into the hands of the enemy, but have set my feet in a spacious place. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. And I thank God that I don't feel that way anymore. Um, but I have felt that way. I've, I, I was in such a dark place um, in 2000, by 2004, and I, I just am so thankful to God that whether we're in a dark place because of other situations or because of our own actions, 
he still loves us yeah. and he can still bring us out of that dark place and comfort us and let us know we're loved and we're his children. Yes. And that is one of my favorite Psalms. I have several, so yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I do love that. So thank you for sharing sure. it. Well, I really appreciate you sharing this story that is never an easy story and especially this time of year, but I think that it will help other women when they have things that they need to overcome and it will give them strength and courage to see how you handled it. So thank you very much. Well, thanks for having me, Nita. The In the Whisper podcast is sponsored by Gifts with Grace. Gifts with Grace connects caring mentors with women who need encouragement and support after experiencing trauma. Our mentors meet women where they are, and together we work towards specific goals uniquely suited just for them. Each woman also has the opportunity to grow spiritually through Bible study and express herself through the creative process of gift making. If you want to know more about Gifts with Grace, go to our webpage at giftswithgrace.org. Thank you, Diane. And I don't know if you all noticed, but when Diane was talking about trying to get to the Pentagon, she talks about coming over that hill and how everyone was leaving the Pentagon. And Diane is working her way down there to get into the Pentagon, in heels no less. And when another bomb scare came about and people were being told to take shelter, Diane is still making her way to the Pentagon to do what she knew needed to be done. And I so admire that in her and in all of of our servicemen and women who are so willing to walk into those buildings when the rest of us are running out. Diane talked um, a little bit about the covenant that God made with her and how he covered her regardless of her circumstances and regardless of how she was um, reacting to that covenant. And I can see so clearly how he did cover her at this time and took care of her and waited patiently while she found her way back to him. And I think that's a beautiful part of this story as well. Next week, we are going to be talking to Candlelyn Green. Candlelyn is a foster mom, and she is going to share her story with us about fostering. Thank you so much for spending your day with us.